is this thing that we do in sales where we think about how this new movement, this new trend in the world impacts us as sellers. And we don't think about how it impacts the buyer. Okay. <laughs> sure. Salespeople are selfish. Go figure. Right. But what's happened in the last year is like a very legitimate change in the way humans live and conduct business. The way they operate is different. We're remote. We're asynchronous. We're private. We're, we're at home. We're not in a group setting anymore. And what's happening is B2C technology is driving trends in B2B technology. And I'm literally just talking about an iPhone. My mom in her 70s installed Uber on her iPhone, saw the cars and said, oh, there are cars nearby and I don't have to call a cab. I will now use Uber. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Joe Caprio. Joe's the co-founder of Reprise, a no-code platform for product demo creation. And today, Joe and I have a wide-ranging discussion. Uh, first of all, it fills us on on Reprise, or Reprise, depending on how you pronounce it. The problem, and we talk about the problem they're solving for SaaS companies by making it easier for buyers to actually experience your product. Now, Joe and I always have a lot of fun talking about sales in general, and this conversation is no exception. We get into the whole topic of how to give sellers more autonomy and freedom in developing their own, their own personal effective sales styles. We dive into personal values. I mean, what are the personal values that the average sellers hold? What are the negative values that hold sellers back? And most importantly, how do you interview for values with new candidates? And Joe and I also trade some thoughts about the post-pandemic future of sales and what that's going to look like. So all this and much, much more. But before we get to Joe, I just want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we always appreciate it if you could give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Joe, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Andy. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited. It's always fun to chat. We we should have recorded our last chat, which was what a month or so ago. I was like, it would have been a great episode. I was trying to recall what we had talked about so I could sort of think, well, we should go back into those topics here today. Um, so you have a new gig since the last time we talked. Tell us a little bit about Reprise or Reprise. How do you pronounce it? Reprise. Reprise. Uh, okay. Thank you. I get that a lot, actually. <laughs> uh, but it's like a rose by any other name. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm not that passionate about about uh, what you call us. More passionate about what you use us for. Um, it's been, you know, it's been a fun year for me. I, I left Chorus at, at the uh, the end of Q1 last year and came and started this business reprise with with three of my good friends that I had worked with at Insight Squared. And so mm -hmm. all four co-founders that had, you know, overlapped at Insight Squared. And it's a classic problem. We had this problem and, you know, the idea for reprise was born in that shared experience. So we incorporate what oh, was that? Please. Well, what was oh, <laughs> um, so I, as a sales leader, I have a challenge with my demo environment. You know, I'm demoing live on Zoom and I'm demoing a production environment. And mm -hmm. so when the product goes down, my demo goes down with it. And because it's a production environment, I'm spending crazy amounts of energy, like building custom data sets to feed right. through the product, to resonate with different verticals. And when new features come out, it's like pulling teeth, getting demo environments from product and engineering. And so I, as a sales leader, I, as a marketing leader, I have no control over my demo environment. I'm entirely dependent on the engineering side of the house. Right. Like they don't write my blog. They don't post my, you know, they don't host my webinar. So why are they creating sales and marketing demos? 
And so we at Reprise have been hard at work for like two years now behind the scenes, building a platform that can clone a production environment and then give a sales and marketing leader the ability to just type in the data and the storyline that they want to create. And so we've built the first no-code demo creation platform for sales and marketing leaders. And we launched in May of last year. We raised Mm -hmm. a very modest seed round. We raised $3 million from Glasswing and Accomplice, a couple of firms Mm -hmm. we've worked with in the past. And then five months later in December, uh, Ajay from Bain came inbound and he preempted us. Five months after our seed, he gave us a $17 million A. And so nice. on Jan 1, yeah, on Jan 1 of this year, my life went upside down. We went from thinking we'd have a 10-person company proving product market fit to we're 45 people right now, you know, mid-March. We're going to be 100 by the half. We've got, you know, a couple dozen customers. And mm-hmm. uh, it, I mean, it's just going crazy. Like we're flooded with inbound leads. And hey, it turns out that every SaaS company is unhappy with their demo. Who knew? But there are other demo automation companies out there. So sure. what, are you, what are you doing different? Oh, yeah. Um, We have yet to find a pure competitor. You're totally right. I think that a lot of companies are either like the the current state of demos. Most SaaS companies are just demoing their production environment. Mm -hmm. They don't have a demo machine. They're just using their product and they log into a production environment and they're like, this is how it works. And that's the demo. Some companies have moved to a mock-up or a wireframe approach, like Envision, Figma, Marvel, and mm-hmm. the same stuff that your product leader uses to kind of design the new features. They're actually demo and mock-ups live on calls, which is right. you know crazy. Uh, but it, you know it's a nice band-aid if you don't have the feature set that that you know you want in your demo. Right. Other companies are using video-based software, you know, like Consensus, Loom, mm-hmm. uh, Vidyard, and what they're doing is it's not actually building a demo environment. It's demoing their production environment, but recording themselves demoing it, right. and then emailing that video recording out, more like in lieu of a demo. Right. There are no, there are no demo creation platforms that are doing what we do. And so we, we are very basically a Chrome extension that you add in to your, your browser experience, and you use your product like you normally would, and Reprise makes a copy of the front end only. We sever it from the database. We sever it from anything that's being processed. And we essentially just give you the UX. So what does your product look like? What are the hover states? What right. are the clicks? What does the mouse overs look like? Right. And then we scrape that UX and allow you to do demos, but only one inch deep, which is all your customer cares about. They just want to see how your product works. Sure. They don't actually care about the ones and zeros. So we've invented a no-code demo creation platform that nobody else has done yet. Interesting. So, if yeah, if the customer wants to go deeper, then proof of concept or whatever. Well, that's kind of the point, right? Is you think about, yeah. you think about in my experience, right? So I spent seven years at Insight Squared, and then I spent three years at Chorus. Mm-hmm. And so for the last decade, I've been selling B two B revenue SaaS. Right. Well, I was just going to give you a hard time about about Chorus. It's, yeah. Well, so the company that shall not be mentioned here on a Ring DNA podcast, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, I spent two years there as the head of sales. I'm not there anymore, but I can't change my past. That's where I was. And so, yeah, we'll just, so, we'll just edit that out. <laughs> Joe, right. you were for a couple of years? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. But no, but the point is like I've sold B2B revenue SaaS for 10 years. I sell to the CRO, sales enablement, sales operations, head of marketing. I sell into the revenue organization. And you know, my buyer consistently asks for a trial. And what I've realized is that, you know, 75% of the time somebody wants a trial, what they really want 
is they want the ability to take my product home and mm-hmm. play with it and yep. show their team without me there. Right. And so they're not actually testing if my product can consume your data and translate it. And, and you know, they're not actually testing my product. They're testing my UX. Mm-hmm. And so what my customers are starting to do is like either right on the website, like before you even talk to sales, they're letting their prospects demo themselves with mm-hmm. these clickable sandboxes we create. Right. Or right after a first call, where normally it's like, thanks for the discovery meeting, next week is the demo, and two weeks after that is the trial. Instead of delaying what the customer wants, which is a clickable prototype, my customers are emailing a sandbox that allows their, their prospects to click through and demo themselves right after a discovery call. And yeah. the way that we're doing that is not by creating a real trial which requires like, you know, uploading of your personal information, uploading of your company data, multiple config calls, right, support resources. And then the worst part is most SaaS products, there's a time to value, which is weeks, if not months. You have to use the product for an extended amount of time before there's any aha. And what we're doing is we're scripting an example demo with an instance that's already full of data and been used. And so the customer gets that aha of what would a day in the life actually be like instead yep. of the customer getting all that frustration and, 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 and like damage of setting up a real trial. And so we're <laughs> yep. leading with the aha moment in a clickable sandbox while your competitor is like, meet me in two weeks and I'll give you a demo. We're collapsing cycles, increasing win rates. Like it's totally yeah. changing well, I- the way companies are thinking of their demo. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really cool about it is because I was going through your site is, is, yeah, I'm a huge believer in this idea that, and this has been borne out by research, is that when people go through a process of making a decision to change, which is what buying is, right, is that one step that buyers always go through is this idea of a mental test drive, right? And what you're basically doing is, is turning that into a reality, right? So instead of having the seller tell a story about, you know, hey, this is how another customer is using this, trying to connect with them on that level. You'll still tell that story, but then, wow, we deliver this this instance to you that enables you to see that very quickly. So that mental test drive stage happens very quickly. I really think that's a, a great way to go. So, Andy, there is a um, there is this thing that we do in, in sales where we think about how this new movement, this new trend in the world impacts us as sellers. Mm. And we don't think about how it impacts the buyer. Okay. And what's happened. Yeah, (laughs) sure. Salespeople are selfish. Go figure. Right. But what's happened in the last year is like a very legitimate change in the way humans live and and, and conduct business. The way they operate is different. We're remote. Mm -hmm. We're asynchronous. We're private. We're we're at home. We're not in a group setting anymore. Right. And, And what's happening is B2C technology is driving trends in B2B technology. And I'm literally just talking about an iPhone, okay? Mm -hmm. My mom in her 70s installed Uber on her iPhone, Mm -hmm. saw the cars and said, oh, there are cars nearby and I don't have to call a cab. I will now use Uber. My aunt installed Airbnb, read the listings and said, I'm not comfortable in someone else's house. I'll stick with hotels.com. And so these are two people who are in the laggard 
you know, quadrant of like technology adoption that are installing products on their phone, using them, and then deciding if they want to really be a customer. Mm-hmm. Now, you play that out with people that are actually making technology purchases for businesses right now that are half of their age. They grew up on iPhones. They grew up on YouTube. And so the way that people are getting used to evaluating tech is I see it, I touch it, I decide, and then I go forward and purchase or not. I get to your B2B SaaS website. And your CTA is talk to sales. I just want to touch it. I just want to click through the inventory and then decide if I want to talk to sales. And for enterprise software companies, that's really scary. And it's really difficult to create as an experience because it takes work to run your platform. And so what I'm doing is not replacing sales. I'm not replacing trials. I'm just giving the customer what they want first, which is an ability to click around your product without you there so that they can do some self-education and then decide that they're ready to talk to sales. It's just being buyer-centric in this customer-led you know, marketplace. Yeah, well, I think that it, it speaks to a really important issue, which is that sale, at least in my mind, is that, that sales so often is driven, as you sort of talked about, it's like, how do I get this person to adopt my product, which is the sort of the going in position of so many sellers, right, is how do I persuade somebody to buy my product, whereas when you get a chance to try it, we know from research that actually the first step a buyer goes through is, looks, I need to define this problem that I'm trying to solve. Well, one of the ways you help define the problem is you become educated about it, right? It's really the role of the seller is to help educate the buyer to maybe broaden the consideration and understand more thoroughly the scope of the product they're trying to solve, the scope of the problem they're trying to solve. Yeah, and having this type of tool to help people sort of envision potential outcomes, yeah, I think it's hugely powerful. I always think about um, my experience looking at other software companies. My first, my first thing that I do, you know, and I'm a salesperson, mm-hmm. so it's probably right before a sales meeting. I go on your website and I try to figure out what you do, and then I try to figure out how my pitch you know, could, could be fit into what you do. And right. so my whole career, I've been looking at companies' websites in a mad dash, you know, in like 90 seconds before my conversation with them, I'm on their website trying to quickly grok what they do. Mm-hmm. And it's always been infuriating to me that all I get are eBooks and case studies and like long form content and watch this video and click over here, click over and there. And, yeah, yeah, get lost in a click hole. And then the entire time, it's like that company is selling the value Instead of just telling me what they do, and Mm -hmm. as a salesperson, right, I'm sure people can relate to this, like, it's really annoying. It's really annoying to go on somebody's website and be like, what do they do? And then have to click 15 things and read and do research and, and try to, like, decipher what they do. And so I thought that was me as a salesperson because I'm only looking at their website for selfish reasons. I want to quickly figure out what they do. Dude, guess what? Everyone on your website just wants to quickly figure out what you do. Nobody wants to go to your website and do homework. Why are we creating these like long form, long winded, meandering, like thought leadership pieces when all people want is what your product does? We're doing it because it's actually really difficult to carve out just the aha moment of your product and put that on your site. And the reason that's really difficult is because it takes work to work your product. So you have to use the product and configure the product, and then it spits out the value. And so what we're doing is we're just carving out that aha moment. We're putting these light switch demos on our customer's website. So their prospect – Right. I like the terminology you use on that. I mean it's sort of the the aha moment, right? How do we get somebody to an aha moment to understand what we do? 
Right. Well, I can't remember if it was David Scock or Jason Lemkin who wrote a blog called Time to Wow. And the idea was like, if I'm on a, on a company's website, or if I'm on a call with a salesperson, or if I turn on the free trial, the question is how long, right? How many clicks, how many minutes, like how many motions, how many meetings, how long until I go, oh, wow, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get it now, right? And so the idea is how do you collapse the time to wow is you lead with the, the aha moment up front. But you can't do that if it takes weeks and weeks to, to deliver. So we're carving out the aha moment. We're putting it up front on a website. We're enabling AEs. This is my favorite part. AEs get on the first meeting, right? Normally, yeah. their prospects like, give me the demo. Right. I went on your website. You had a free demo button. I clicked it. I filled in the form. I waited three business days. Give me that demo. And the poor AE sitting there like, oh, um, no, no. Actually, our first call is for discovery. Uh, next week is the demo, right? And the prospect's like, what are you talking about? I didn't click get discovery. Yeah, exactly, right? And and so the challenge, though, is the product's too complicated. There are too many directions you could go. The product takes forever to set up. It's very technical. You wouldn't understand my demo until you give me discovery. And your prospect is like, that's actually super offensive. I wouldn't understand your demo if I don't Mm -hmm. give you discovery. You mean your win rate will go down if you don't get discovery. This isn't buyer centricity. This isn't for me. This is for you, the seller. And it's the opposite of how we always talk to sellers. Be buyer centric, be customer first, like use the buyer's process. Somehow the buyer's process has turned into- Sellers don't understand the buyer's process. Right. Somehow the buyer's process is this. You wait three business days after being on my website. And then you get a call with me. You give me a 60-minute interrogation, which I call discovery. And then if I agree that you're qualified, you get a demo. You bring your boss, and I'll give you the demo. And then you tell me how you buy software, and then I'll tell you what it costs. You tell me what success metrics are, and then I'll let you try it. And what the buyer actually wants is to click into your product on day one or show up to a call with sales and have them give the overview, the five-minute evangelical pitch. That's what the buyer wants, yet what the seller is delivering is three meetings over the course of a month. This is not buyer-centric selling. This is well, not the buyer's process. Right. So, I've, and I refer back to this oftentimes on the show, is that you know, Gartner's research a couple years ago, buyer enablement, they had their famous flow chart, very complex flow chart. What buyer's trying to do, at the heart though, four jobs buyer's trying to accomplish. Identify the problem, evaluate alternatives, finalize the requirements, select a vendor. So if you really divide that up, those first three steps are all about how do I solve my problem, right? The first one is what is the problem? Let's define what the scope of the problem is. The second one is, you know, what are the alternatives to solve it? Third one is finalize the requirements. It's really saying, look, I'm making a choice about how I'm going to solve this. Now I'm going to go choose who I'm going to solve it with. But we train our sellers and our process is all geared toward that fourth one, select the vendor. And we sort of bypass those first three steps. I could not agree more. I could not agree more. I think there's like, I think there's this interesting like um, tension right now between there's a product led camp in software. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of VCs that are advocating for this, especially after right. COVID. But even before COVID, you have Slack and Snowflake and a lot of the big, huge, like, you know, growth stories are product led. Right. And it's like remove the friction of a salesperson, be really specific with what your product does, enable people to experience it before you try to monetize, right? And that's the product led camp. And then you have this sales led camp, which is really interesting to me. And it's like no demo before discovery. 
I need to, you know, I need to be in control of the sale. And, and you know what I mean? And product led wouldn't right. work for us. Our product's too technical. Our product's too complicated. Like you need me, you need me. And there's this weird push pull. And I'm over here somewhere in the middle where I am a sales led organization. I don't have a freemium, you know, option on my website. I'm sales led, but sure. I am behaving product led. Every freaking chance I get, I demo on the first meeting. I send collateral that includes clickable product experiences in my follow-up call. I invite people into trials. I let them have access to my sandbox. I do favorable year one contracts so they can grow into it. All of my new features are available to customers, not for paid, but to just use for free in the beginning. And I am a sales-led organization that is behaving product-led every chance I get. Because I do have the same challenges that other enterprise software companies have. It's not super easy to just turn my thing on. So I can't go full freemium, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, dig my heels in and resist the way buyers want to buy. Well, yeah. So I think, I think one way is to look at what you're doing and sort of at least the perspective I'm looking at is that, you know, why do, why do buyers choose to talk to a seller? Choose is a really interesting word, Andy. You know, choose. And so, and so well, they There's do. A, it's the only one they, doorbell they, on the they, outside of your building. Well, they it's do. It's the only button on your website. Well, look, I mean, increasingly, buyers can go, you know, down a certain ways, depending on the complexity of the product and so on. If it's not purely transactional, if there's some complexity, they can go certain ways into their buying process, and then they need to talk to a salesperson. Right. So they talk to you when they need to. Right. Yes. Okay. I mean, but why? So, Here's my so point, I think, Andy. I think that. So I think some of the beauty of what you're doing is is by giving them this this insight early on, is you're accelerating that point where they said, "Oh, yeah, we're thinking about this in the context of sort of defining our problem we need to solve." Yeah, we need to talk to Joe about that, right? And yeah. So, it's it's whereas yeah I agree with you 100. It's the way most processes sales processes are set up is the antithesis of being buyer centric, because it's all about well who knows what it's about right I mean I I get into arguments with people online about this who you know say oh the sales process is there for the seller no <laughs> sales process is there for the manager let's not mistake itself <laughs> you know, it's not there for the benefit of the seller it's certainly not there for the benefit of the buyer. I mean, I don't think anybody can look at their sales process, though this may change with what you're doing, is saying our sales process exists to enable the buyer to make a decision. Yep. Andy, I look at at a lot of sales leaders, okay? Mm. And they they show me they all have the same chart, the same same dashboard, and it's opportunities or revenue Mm. by source. Right. You know what I mean? And the sources are things like paid, retargeted, you know what I mean, referral sites. And then they always have a source that says free trial. And I laugh because I'm like, I'm like, what is what does that mean? And they're like, look, free trial, it's our best lead source. People love the free trial. As soon as they take a free trial, I know that we have a chance at winning the deal. And I'm like, everything else you mentioned, retargeting, paid, referral sites, those are origination places that drive traffic to your website. Free trial is when somebody lands on your website, there's one CTA. And it says free trial. And then when I click on it, it's a form that I fill in to meet your sales team. 
Right. That's not a lead source. And no. it doesn't mean they wanted a trial. It means you funneled them to your website, and then the only doorbell on the outside of your building is the free trial button, and you're labeling it a lead source. Yep. The reality is like people want to talk to sales. People don't want to talk to sales. They talk to sales when they have to. Yep. And they either have to because they've run out of education assets that they yes. can do without sales. My point right? exactly. Right. And that just means that the vendor, your marketing team, right? The vendor is not giving them what they actually want and they're defaulting, okay, fine, I'll talk to sales. Why not give them a little more upfront, a little bit of product on the website, a little bit of the experience on the website and see just how far into your sales motion they'll get without you and then take a second and ask yourself if you're against product-led. Like you might be against freemium, you might be against, you know, totally replacing your sales team with robots and that's fine, so am I. But your buyer is willing to do more research and more self-education than you think they are and you are stopping them from doing that research and inserting a talk to us button. And I don't know why. <laughs> we, we could spend hours on that one. <laughs> I mean, I, I yeah. Gosh, let's not open that Pandora's box because it's it's yeah. I I get on my soapbox about yeah. I read all the stuff about modern selling, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and you look at sales stages of companies that profess to do modern selling, and I go, oh, you know, I started sales forty years ago. I use those exact same stages. <laughs> so what's new, right? I, okay, well, I, if I automated top of funnel activity and so on, that's great. But that's not selling, right? That's really lead gen. Mm -hmm. So when I get to the actual selling part, what's modern about it? Yeah. And so I think things like what you're talking about, though, with reprise is, is yeah, that starts becoming modern. We're using technology in a way to help the buyer accelerate their decision-making process. That's what we should be using the technology for, not to, not to benefit our process, but to help the buyer. And I think this is a huge chasm that still exists, right, that we haven't crossed. So, yeah, very interesting. Andy, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the sales gating, right, is really, is really the topic. Sales mm -hmm. gating, you know, uh, is it the buyer's process? Is it the sales process? Is it the sales manager's process? Like, who wants this process? Let's, let's think about it. The process is gating, you know, it's give to mm -hmm. get. Right. And so we all folded a piece of paper in half and we wrote the buyer wants, the seller needs. Mm -hmm. And we kind of lined up stage based exit criteria. Oh, they ask for the quote, ask for access to purchasing power. Oh, they asked for a trial, ask for, you know, success criteria. Right. Like they asked for a discount, ask for access to finance. Right. Like right. they want this, you give that. They want this, they give that. They want the demo, get discovery first. Mm -hmm. And in the way it actually plays out is before the buyer gets what they want, the seller gets what they need. It's not give to get, right? Mm -hmm. It's get and then give. Yeah, right. And that's the way we've architected our entire motion is find out what they want and then hold it hostage until you get what you need, right? And oh. that's how we've designed our sales motion. And you've got to ask why. Why? Why? If my win rate is 75% from trial, and that's typical in SaaS, oh, our win rate from trial is 75%. If I could get them into a trial, they buy. Well, then why the hell would you gate it? Why would you not just let everyone into the trial? The reality versus what we say. What we say is the product's complicated. You wouldn't understand it. You're not there yet. You're not qualified. We have to, you know what I mean? It's all selfish, like optimizable win rate stuff. The reality of why we're not letting people race into our product is it's hard to set up. It's complicated. It's expensive. It requires a sales engineer. It requires processing data. Like there's an internal cost to doing a trial, right? And so we've stopped people 
from experiencing the power of our software. We stop people from, from you know, being self-led because we don't want to incur the cost or the, or the, or the risk without making sure they're going to buy first. It's terrible. It's like asking somebody well, if they're going to marry you before you go on your first date. Well, right. You're assuming you know what the problem is before you find out what it is. And that's right. that. That to me is that's the core of it, right? This is this is the basis of a lot of the B two B selling that goes on today. Is yeah, we've got a we've got a solution. You clearly have a problem that fits it. And instead of saying, "Look, what is the problem?" Because that's really where we start adding value to the buyer is you help them to find the problem they're trying to solve and the outcomes they potentially can achieve. I have this funny theory on that, Andy. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I think you're right, and and I think that. Um, that actually belongs, though, in stage two of your process, where stage one is evangelism. Stage one is, is, sure. is just kind of, right? It, it, it's spreading awareness of what you do. And I think the problem is, you know, because the only CTA on the website is talk to sales, get a demo, get a trial, it all leads to talk to sales, right? We're, we're trying to get you into a sales meeting, maybe before we should. And then we're running a sales process as if you had already been evangelized. Mm-hmm. And so you look at what's going on on a website. I go to any company's website and there's there's a drop down, you know, vertical, persona, use case, right. whatever. And within one click, I'm into a, oh, for this role in this segment, this is how you would use my product. Mm-hmm. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. Every SaaS company right now, if you're listening, go on your own website. There's one click I need to make where I hover over product, vertical, persona, and I make one option, and I'm in a tailored landing page, exactly the top three use cases for me, right? right. And that's a, that's a machine does that. One click on your website, right. I'm in yeah. my, my persona, my segment, and this is what your product does for me with videos, with GIFs, with case studies, all meant to resonate just with me. Okay. And you could do that on your website. I get on the phone with a human being and they're like, you wouldn't understand my demo until you give me discovery. And I'm like, how about one question? Cause that's all your website needs. And then your website can give me like, these are the top three things you might care about. Okay. Why are we not behaving that way on a first call? Here's a high level of what we do. Here are the top three things you might need from me. Let's pick one and go deep on it. Instead, we're training our sales reps. You got to find the problem and create value. And that's getting a sales rep to, to play a game of poker where they won't show their screen. They won't show their product. They won't make an educated guess on what the prospect needs for fear of getting it wrong and hurting their win rate. And so it turns into this awkward, herky-jerky argument. Give me the demo. No, give me discovery. I don't want to give discovery. I want a demo. I'm trained not to do a demo. You know, and it, it's like an argument on the first call when your buyer just wants to know what you do. Sure. Why is that so oh. hard? So I think a, a frame of mind that, that sellers need to be trained in is, again, going back to this Gartner model, and you'll just say these first three jobs the buyer's trying to accomplish, it's not about product at all. It's really about ideas, right? right. How, how am I going to solve my problem? What is the problem? What are the alternatives for solving it? And I think sellers need to take this attitude that what they're trying to do is that really trying to, it's like a design in, Right. It's almost like you're selling an integrated circuit to a larger solution. This is what you're trying to sell. That's how you're trying to sell your solution, right? I'm trying to influence the buyer to say, yeah, this is how we want to solve this problem. And it's around the solution, not the specific problem. And so I think that what happens, in my belief, is that you know, we train sellers, and it's, and it's integrated into the process. The assumption is we're trying to persuade you to buy our product. Instead of we're trying to influence your perception of what your problem is so that the solution logically turns out to be us. 
and it's fundamentally different motions. And part of the problem we have, yeah, it doesn't mean that we don't sell in spite of it. In fact, I would I make the statement that you know, if you're a self-honest and a reflective salesperson, you understand that your buyers make a decision to buy from you in spite of you, not because of you. And that, and this is the fundamental issue we have in sales, is that people are buying in spite of you, not because of you. And you need to change that equation. They're going to be buying because of you. And, and we have to get away from this idea that everything is this blunt hammer persuasion at each step along the way to sell somebody. I mean, we know there's research out there. Jonah Berger talks about his book, The Catalyst, that basically everyone in the world universally has this innate resistance to being persuaded. Yes. So so let's yes. so it just makes sense then that we would train our salespeople universally to exhibit the one behavior that everybody in the world hates. Yep. And we wonder yep. why we have problems. Yep. Exactly. So so you um you want to evangelize. You want to find the problem. You want you want to talk about the the, the yes. outcome, the business case. You don't want to talk about the software. You don't want to feature sell because you're less likely to win a deal if you're just focused on point solutions, and you're yep. more likely to win a deal at a good price point if you could talk to you know business challenges. So you get on a meeting with a customer. What they actually want is to know what you do, mm-hmm. and it's a bad question on their part. Because they're they're asking for a feature demo, and sure. and we all know we don't want to do a feature demo. We want to explain the value. We want to make a business case, right? But the customer is literally saying, "Show me how it works. Show me what it does uh, to get that sure. business value." Right. And so I don't think we need to launch into a sixty-minute deep dive technical demo, right? But if we well, don't turn our screen on, that's mistrust from the customer. Exactly to your point. I want to know how it works, and you're giving me slideware. I yeah. want to see what it does, and, 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 and you're refusing to show me, and you're, you're leaning towards either I'm stupid, I wouldn't understand your product without discovery, or you're selfish, our process is. And those are the only two excuses we give salespeople. <laughs> Turn your screen on, do right. a five-minute demo explaining right. the top three use cases right. in that segment for that role. Five minutes in the product, remove that friction – Customer relaxes, got their demo, saw a couple interesting stories, and goes, ooh, story number two is our biggest challenge. Tell me more about that. Screen goes off, 20 minutes left in the 30-minute call, and you do discovery. It's give to get. Give the demo, get discovery. It's not get discovery before you give the – it's give to get. Well, I think it's a way of of making that connection with that person, right? As long as you're putting up the resistance – to what they want to accomplish, because they just want to understand initially. I think I agree with you 100. Is is up front? Yeah. What do you do? It's. I mean, it's like the the proverbial question. So tell me what you do. Right. And, and a problem that is almost universal in sellers is they can't concisely explain what they do. And I'm not talking about elevator pitch. I'm talking five words. You get five words to tell the buyer what you do. You know, I ran right. a contest last year on LinkedIn on, on my post where I said, tell me what you sell in five words. In five words, you can convey what you do and the value the customer receives from it. And you just have to have those five word statements for the C-level, for the CRO, for the, for the head of sales ops, rev ops, sale frontline manager, whatever. Those are light switch moments. Those are light bulb moments. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, Persona vertical, Andy. 
And if you can, if you can bolster that, I, I, I call those micro-positioning statements. But if you, if you can do that and bolster with something like what Reprise is doing, then suddenly, instead of having their guard up about why aren't you giving me this information, you've removed that friction point. Yeah, man. It's persona vertical three case studies. It's like, the, it's like stupid simple. For, for a person like you in a, in a company like that, here are the last three customers that, that have helped. Story yeah. one, story two, story three. Ooh, story three, you know, is exciting to you? Let's go yeah. deep on that. For, for right. a guy like you at a company like that, these are the things that I, I most often see. What, what speaks to you? It's so, yeah. it's so easy. It's on your website right now, yet your sales reps aren't doing it. They're doing 60 minutes like, who else gets involved? How do y'all normally buy software? <laughs> like, it's a joke, right? Tell me about Bant when we're all evangelizing before the problem exists. No one has, no one has budget because no one knows what their need is because we're going outbound trying to source these meetings. Right. And you get on a call and you, you do, you do 1990-style discovery. It's crazy. Well, so what's 1990-style discovery? Bant. Oh, tell me, <laughs> tell me the budget. You know, the 1990-style discovery is well, when you give your sales so, rep a so list Joe, of so questions. Joe, Joe, let me just tell you, since you weren't around in the 90s doing this, <laughs> <laughs> is that those people that were kicking it in the 90s weren't doing bad either. Just FYI. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. None of my teams, we ever, no, we never did bad. I mean, that was that was ridiculous from day one. Um, there are companies still doing bad, Andy. There are companies still doing a list of qualification questions yeah. that are not not like case specific or, or, or like, you know, opportunity specific. It's just universal. You ask these five questions on a call and if the customer answers them, you can move them forward into the next stage. It doesn't make any sense to ask for things like budget and need. It doesn't make any sense to ask for that when like we're evangelizing a problem and 90% of SaaS transactions, like we're there before the customer really needs us to be there. And we're like, give us all this information about this existing problem. And then I'll tell you what we do. Yeah. So I've got a new book coming out next year, and, and one of the stories I have in there to try to sort of help sellers understand the mindset they need to have is that for a chunk of my career, I, I sold products that didn't exist. So I had a basket full of technologies that this company wanted to commercialize, and my job was to go out and find a large enterprise somewhere that would pay us millions of dollars to develop the product for them that didn't exist and millions of dollars to manufacture the products that resulted from it. So I had, you know, I, I had no product. I had no market. I had no, I mean, it's like, yeah, this is the most fun selling you can have, right? But I was just trying to find a problem I could solve for somebody. And sellers sort of need to have that attitude when they go out. Is you may have a product, but just forget about your product. Find somebody who has a problem that you can help solve. And if you can help influence their vision of how they want to solve that problem, the outcomes they can achieve, and it happens to be aligned with your product, fantastic. But if you go out with that product-first mentality, you always run into these problems. And yeah. again, this is not so, a binary, hey, it doesn't work 100% of the time. Of course, people are still selling. But you look at the people who are more consistently successful at what they do in sales, this is what they're doing. They are solving problems first. I agree. I think um, a lot of the companies I've worked at, you know, I, I start early. I was employee nine at Inside Squared. I was employee mm-hmm. 30 at Chorus. Both of those companies went like up to 200 people, 10, 20 million in revenue. Right. So like I've seen early to, to mid-stage a couple of times and you, you seem to grow up on inbound leads in the beginning. And your sales team gets accustomed to inbound leads. And then you suddenly go outbound 
and it's entirely different sales motion. And it's like they, they can't quite figure it out. But the difference between an inbound and an outbound, I think, does a really good job of, of tying our, our discussion in, in, in a bow here. It's like on an inbound lead, I can just set the agenda and, and that kicks off a discovery because my agenda is like, wow, Andy, you came from this lead source. That's great. Tell me more. How did you find us? Why did you care? Right. Why are you here? How is that a problem? How long has it been a problem? Who else knows about it? What's the impact? What have you done about it? And it's just natural to go into discovery on why you're here. Mm-hmm. Okay. You grow a sales team up on inbound leads and they start going, hey, Andy, why'd you take the call today? Super lazy intro. And Andy's like, this is why I'm here. And your win rate's high. You start going outbound. And you're like, hey, Andy, why'd you take the call today? And he's like, because you fucking asked me to. <laughs> Your PDR emailed me and begged for a meeting, right? Like, that's why. And it's like, well, how long has that been? A, it's like, how long has what been a problem? What are you talking about? You asked right. me for this time. I gave right. you this time. And now you want to ask me a bunch of stupid questions about what I struggle with. I don't even know you. No, I don't want to whiteboard my business challenges. No, I don't want to tell you what keeps me up at night. You asked for this time. World's you got this time. Use it. Yeah, right. You asked for this time. You got this time. Use the time wisely. Tell me what you think you can help me with. Give me your top three things of what you do, and I'll tell you if any one of them makes sense, and then we can have a conversation. But like inbound versus outbound is very much like active project versus evangelizing. Mm -hmm. An active project – Spend some time learning about the project. Ask your, ask your prospects some questions. They'll give you the answer. It's an active project. Right. I guarantee you 80% of the pipeline that reps work right now, non-active project, just an interested stakeholder, and it's our job to pitch a little bit. I don't know when, when salespeople became afraid to pitch. We've been guzzling this Kool-Aid about consultative sale and solution selling. and You need to do discovery or else you can't, you can't do your job properly. Get on the phone and pitch. Your website does it with one click. Get on the phone and pitch. Yeah, well, I think it's a matter of how you pitch, right? So, I mean, I think that that you identified the problem early on is that sellers are trained to sort of be a little bit presumptuous on the connection they form with somebody. And if they get into that pitch too soon, somebody's saying, look, you're selling me without understanding what I need. So it's okay to invest a little time. When you evangelize, to me... Has always been because yeah, I was first in on a number of companies, yeah, VP title, but I was I was selling like I just talked about before. You're evangelizing, so you got to form connections with people. You got to earn their trust. You earn their trust. They're gonna open up and let you in on a lot more detail about what it is they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish, the problems they have, and they ask you for your help at that point to say, oh. Oh, I mean, there's something else we could do that we hadn't really considered doing before to help us achieve our goals. Fantastic. Yes, sir. It's it's just like a game of poker where you know we each have we have five cards and you can't see them, and and you know one round at a time. I'm going to reveal a card and so are you, and then I'm going to reveal another card and so are you, and we're just going to go around taking turns revealing cards until we're showing each other what we have, and and then the hand is over. On a normal sales call, it seems like the sales rep is like, all right, give me one more. Okay, give me you know, a game of Go Fish. Do you have any sevens? Well, do you have any eights? Well, do you have any nines? I'll have about tens. And it's like, just show your cards a little bit. Just show a couple cards. Here's, a, here's an example of this customer. Here's an example of that customer. Like, you know, just give and take a little bit throughout the call. I think every interaction now is a little bit of discovery and a little bit of demo kind of blurred That's together absolutely. versus having these like siloed, you know, first we do disco, then we, no, Every right. call no, no. is a little back and, and forth. And this is, yes, yeah. How much time do we have left? Yeah, no, this is, get me going. It's here on this is, yeah. Every call 
you deepen your connection, you deepen your discovery, you deepen your understanding what the buyer is trying to achieve, and you give something of value that takes you to the next stage. That's it. I mean, people think yes, discovery, sir. this is one thing that just drives me nuts, is people think discovery is a one-and-done thing. What happens when the customer is engaged with you and engaged with two of your competitors, trying to understand their problem, trying to understand what they can achieve, they get smarter. And if you're not going back and rediscovering every time you can, they could be off on a different path and you're just not even aware of it because you think they're marching down the path the way that you want them to go. Yeah, but Andy, I moved them out of the discovery stage in my <laughs> yeah, CRM two weeks it. ago. <laughs> so why would I ask another question, right? Like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we got a lot of work to do, my friend. Hey, hey, I wanted to, before you, we go, because we are coming sort of to the end, I did want to um, talk about your man, Evan Patterson. Yes, sir. <laughs> sort of a star this week on LinkedIn. Uh, Evan's been amazing for us. It's his first week on LinkedIn, 17 I was, meetings. I was happy to give him a big shout out uh, on his post, and we got tremendous engagement on it. Um, so, you know, you're giving him some freedom, right? Mm -hmm. One of the, the, the most remarkable thing about that was that clearly he doesn't feel like he has to worry about how many calls did you make this week? How many emails did you send this week? Because A, is not making any calls, and B, is not sending any emails. <laughs> but not he's one, booking, a, but booking, booking a ton of meetings. 17 in his first week. And, I and know it's Thursday. Right. And I know most frontline managers would shit themselves at the prospect of giving somebody that much autonomy <laughs> to stray from the recipe. So how do you feel comfortable doing that? Well, somebody asked me in, in the post, right? Um, you, and, you and Evan were, were engaging on, yeah. on LinkedIn, and somebody asked in a comment, like, look, I'd love to know how Joe does this. Right? Yeah, well, I was going to ask you that real quickly. Well, I, I laughed because I'm like, I don't know how to do it. Evan knows how to do it. I hired somebody who's really good at it and really smart, and so why would I over-control what he does? I haven't, I haven't done real BDR, like, like demand gen, in, in, in 15, 20 years, right? Yeah. So why the hell would I ever hire somebody who's been doing it for the last three years and, and he's actually really good at it? Why would I hire him and be like, this is how you work? I hired him. I said, how do you work? Show me some of your existing stuff. Show me what you're doing. Like, mm -hmm. great. Let's go try that. And then I unleashed the guy. And he's killing it. He's killing it, right? He's, he's engaging yeah. with people. He knows our target audience. He knows the talk track. He knows the pain point. He's going out and having conversations with people and then saying, you know, by the way, like, do you want to see how Reprise helps with that conversation? He's not going out there being like, we've X, 300X ROI, will you take a meeting? Or like, he's yeah. not doing that stuff. He's just having conversations to find the people that want to have that conversation. And then he's parlaying that into a meeting with, with, with his sales team. I don't need phone yeah. calls. I don't need emails. Andy. I had a CEO once say, I want to hear it on the sales floor. I want to hear a buzz on the sales floor. And I said, why? And he's like, so I know they're busy. And I said, oh, cool. I use this report from the CRM to know if they're busy. You want to hear noise to know they're busy. So you want my buyers to have a worse experience where there's background noise and it's chaos and they could tell that our sales floor is a disaster. You want that so you have this comfort Right. That sales is working as if you withholding half of our OTE until we hit our number is not enough <laughs> comfort that sales is working. You also want to make us work in a pit where everyone's right. screaming over each other and it sucks for the buyer to try and listen to us. I want my sales reps to do their work electronically where there's a higher reply rate. I want my sales reps to take their Zoom calls in phone booths or from home where they can deliver a better customer experience. I want that. I don't want noise so I know they're busy. 
And I think we have the same thing now with BDRs and BDR leaders or legacy sales leaders that are like calls and emails because that's how I did it. Nobody gives a shit how you did it 20 years ago. The world has changed. 20 years Let ago. Let these kids go two, do their two job. Years ago. <laughs> For real. Right? For real. No, but I mean, I mean like legacy enterprise sales leaders, like the CRO type yelling at the BDRs, get on yeah. the phone, send more emails. It's like, that's how it worked 20 years ago. It's not how it works right now. Well, but it's the way it's working now. That's the point is for most companies in the SaaS space, they're doing this. This is the way they're doing it. What, right? calling you, me on my cell phone during a, during a pandemic? That's what we're telling our BDRs? You know, I scream at people when they call me on my cell phone. I don't give my cell phone out. When right. I register for an event, I intentionally type my cell phone in wrong because I don't want it out there. And so when a BDR calls me on my cell phone and they give me that janky BDR pitch, every time I'm like, how'd you get my cell phone? This is my cell phone. And they're like, yeah. I didn't realize it was your cell phone. I'm like, it's a fucking pandemic. Of course it's my cell phone. I don't have a desk phone, right? This is like my dad when I was a kid screaming at, at telemarketers during exactly. dinner, right? That's what we're making our BDR do make cold calls yeah. it's covid yeah, there's no desk phone you're calling someone on their cell phone knock it off well I th- for me i think the important lesson though i just in wrapping up was that you're giving this person autonomy to be the best version of themselves to experiment to try different things you know we've reached this mindset in SaaS that that and just not beyond SaaS is you know, the specialized sales role that there's one recipe that we need to use and it's just BS. There's not one recipe. Every person is individual. Evan's playing to his strengths. Maybe somebody else is really good on the phone. Let him, let him sure. be great on the phone. There's just not one thing. We need to unleash people to let them become the best version of themselves. And it's so frustrating to see that that's not happening. We wonder why there's high churn levels in sales. We wonder there's high churn levels in management. Because you know people are so wedded with these metrics instead of success. Anyway. Andy, I agree with you, man. We have um, we've had a phone BDR, an email BDR, a research BDR, a social BDR, right? Like we've had different BDRs do different things versus every BDR does this many calls, this many yeah. emails, this many LinkedIn connects. Like why why try to train like an army of hybrid clones of each other? Why not hire social BDRs, you know, LinkedIn BDRs, Slack community? Like why not let yeah. people get good at something and, and do it, do what works for Absolutely. them? Evan's an amazing social BDR, an amazing yeah. social BDR. He's good at it. He has integrity. He's genuine. He starts real conversations. He doesn't waste my seller's time. He doesn't waste right. the, the, his, his, his community's time. He's amazing at it for a reason. Why would I ever say you got to do it this way because that's how I did it? That's well, crazy. Well, because – and we can't start a whole other conversation because I got to jump off. But but because most sales managers operate from a position of fear, <laughs> that's yeah. why. So we'll leave it at that. We'll have you back. We'll talk about that. We'll pick that one up again. All right, I would Joe. Love to. Fantastic talk with you as always. Uh, people want to learn more about Reprise or connect with you. How can I'm that? super active on social. It's, it's Joe Caprio on LinkedIn. You can go to getreprise.com. Um, you know, we're a new vendor. We're 45 people. We raised our, our A round in December, right. and we're just trying to get our name out. So, like, come check us out, getreprise.com, or find me on LinkedIn. I'd, I'd love to, to talk to you. Perfect. All right, Joe. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, we're so grateful for your support of this program. And I want to thank my guest, Joe Caprio, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement, with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate it. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. 
Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>